Hello. Thank you, Timothy. have a word of prayer as we begin. Lord, we thank you for your love and grace in gathering us in this place for this time. We acknowledge, Lord, that behind conference like this, behind times that we can have and meditate on your word and have fellowship with one another, is your tremendous love, Lord, and grace drawing us to yourself. So uh, as we come this morning, Lord, we indeed want to worship you and proclaim that indeed, Lord, you are worthy. We want to say, Lord, that we want to give you indeed the worship, the praise from our hearts. And Lord, as we sit now to listen to your word, Lord, we acknowledge that unless you are the one doing the speaking, unless your presence is in our midst, what is the value of this time? So, Lord, we commit this time into your hands. And we pray, Lord, that in your great, great grace and mercy, Lord, you would use this time to speak to our hearts. Use this time, Lord, to draw us unto yourself. We pray that even the word of the Lord may become so clear so living and real in each one of our hearts that we may follow you with all our hearts. So we commit the time into your hands. We are reminded, Lord, that even if we have very little with our, in ourselves, even five, five loaves and two fishes, Lord, you can bless and multiply and everyone can be fed. So as we come to you, we come as those that have almost nothing. And yet, we remember, Lord, that it's your blessing, it is your presence, that is what's, what really counts. We commit this time into your hands, and we pray, meet us, Lord, in your living way. Speak to our hearts, Lord, and we will give you all the glory. We pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would be in charge of this time, and would enable the speaking and the hearing of your word. So we... Entrust all these things into your hands with a grateful heart. Thank you, Lord, because you have called us, and you are faithful, and you will fulfill. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So I'd like to read two passages as we begin. And the first one is the theme verse for the conference, Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 25, which by now I hope everyone knows this is the theme verse for the conference. Okay? Galatians 5, 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Again, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. And then the Gospel of John chapter 3. We want to read the beginning of that chapter, starting from verse 1. You're going to read all the way to verse 16. 
Gospel of John, chapter 3, starting from verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I I said to you, you must be born again. Verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Verse 13, No one has ascended into heaven, But he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will will in him have eternal life. For, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall shall not perish, but have eternal life. Well, we come to this first session of ministry in the conference, and, uh, you know, I was thinking that it's sometimes it becomes a habit that every time you're speaking about something, you want to emphasize that, you want to say that what you're speaking about is really a very important thing. And I was thinking, well, how should I kind of start this, this conference? Maybe I should mention that this is an important thing. And the more I thought about it, I know that it's, it sounds a little bit, a, a little like a, a cliché. But however, I was really struck about how important, and I cannot emphasize this enough. You may think that it's just a speaker saying, wanting to catch your attention. But the more I thought and meditated about this matter of walking in the Spirit, which is the theme of our conference, the more I thought, wow, is this an important matter in the Word of God? Actually, uh, I can think of very few things that are more important in the Bible, in the Word of God, than this matter of walking in the Spirit. Actually, if you read carefully your Bible, you're going to see that in the very beginning, in Genesis, in the creation of man, that theme is already there, stamped all over the place. And it runs through the whole Bible as a big, big theme, as a key, actually if we are going to be what the Lord has intended us to be. This theme is the secret of fruitfulness 
or unfruitfulness. It depends on if you're walking in the Spirit or not. It's the key of being full or empty. It's the key of being what the Lord has created us to be or not. So uh, bear with me if I'm saying, hey, this is a very important subject. But that's how I was struck as I was meditating on this. Very, very few things come to my mind that are that can be in the same kind of level of importance as this thing to walk in the Spirit. Well, so may the Lord really open our hearts as we meditate on this. And as you have noticed, uh, my burden for this time is to share on this matter from some very familiar passages. And I know that I'm stepping into kind of dangerous territory here. We read John chapter 3, that is probably one of the most, if not the most known chapter in the Bible. And the danger, of course, when we are touching on something that is so familiar, is that, well, you know, that reaction that we have kind of, it's almost uh, unconsciously. When we are touching upon something that is we are familiar with, we tend to say, well, you know, I already heard this thing a thousand times, so I can relax, you know, and uh, I know what, what this guy is going to talk about. Well, that is our tendency, and I'm included into that. But I'll really beg with you, please reconsider. I actually, I was reading as I was preparing, and I, I was reading some, uh, something from a brother that is usually regarded as someone that had one of the deepest experiences of the Lord in the 20th century, and had tremendous ministry out of this, this brother. And as I was reading some material from him, uh, he said something that is really struck me. So I, I better read it, you know, because I don't want to mess up this quote, the quote. So uh, here's what this brother had to say about John chapter 3, this very familiar chapter that is so well known and, and it's rightly so used oftentimes for preaching the gospel. And um, as I'm saying, nothing wrong with that. But however, listen what this brother, tremendous brother in the Lord, what he said about this chapter. He said, we know this chapter. Or we think we do. Of course, we know the words. Perhaps we are almost wearied of that name, Nicodemus. And yet, do n I do not exaggerate. Please believe me. When I say I feel the church has not grasped what is here. He's not talking that the world has not grasped what is Of course, that would be, there is no point even in saying that. But he's saying, I feel that the church has not grasped what is here in John chapter 3. It would be impossible, I'm continuing his, his quote, it would be impossible for the present situation in Christianity in general to exist if what it is in chapter 3 of John had been really obtained. So even though we are stepping into this dangerous, quote-unquote, territory of a familiar passage, I really would... Uh, ask every one of us, let's have an open heart, an open mind, that the Lord may lead us into something that perhaps we haven't fully seen in this so familiar chapter. And I truly believe what, what this brother is saying is absolutely correct. So uh, I want to use this passage this morning to meditate on this theme of walking in the Spirit. However, uh, I felt that before going into the walking of the Spirit, I think there is a, a, a... I want to conclude my little intro mentioning this. Walking in the Spirit 
It seems to me that it's almost as a consequence or is an effect and not a cause. There is something that causes us to walk in the Spirit. And that's why John chapter 3 is so important. I feel that in John chapter 3, the story of Nicodemus, the conversation the Lord had with him, there you find the principles, the story behind walking in the Spirit, or the cause for the effect. You know this stuff, right? From school, cause and effect. You know, when you're studying something, if you really want to get to the kind of bottom of anything you're studying, if you just study the effect of something, well, you know, you're pretty much missing the whole thing you're studying. To really get into the, 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 the bottom of any subject, we need to go to the causes, to the source, to whatever is causing something. And then you understand the effect. So I want to venture to say, as, as we begin, that to walk in the spirit is much more of an effect than a cause. There is something that causes us to walk in the Spirit. And I feel that John chapter 3 is a tremendous chapter in revealing what is that cause behind walking in the Spirit. Okay. So, uh, and, and I'll ask the faith, can you get me a bottle of water? I think under the, maybe under, under even the, the, the podium we may have a bottle of water. Also, to watch my what is it? What is the time here? Forty to forty to twelve or something. What's that? Uh, oh, okay. But we go. We this session runs. Sorry about that. This session runs to twelve. Okay, thank you. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. All right. So, uh, having said this little intro, we want to consider a little bit of adjust the bottles. We want to consider this chapter 3. And keep that in mind. We want to consider what is the source. What is behind walking in the Spirit. right? And it's very important, again, that we can somehow touch and understand, not just in our minds, but understand by revelation what is that source. It is vital. If we, don't do that, if we really don't get that, I feel we are a bit at loss in the whole matter of walking in the Spirit. So, let's go to John chapter 3. And uh, I know that most of you probably are very familiar with this uh, chapter. Probably some in our midst are not. So, uh, I'll go quickly over the whole thing. And I'll assume that you're not that familiar, even if you are. Uh, just want to point a, a, little, a couple of things and, and probably some of the implications of what the Lord told Nicodemus. Okay? But who is Nicodemus? In a short word, he's a great guy. It's He's the best, I, I like to think in Nicodemus as the best, uh, what's the word, the best person that humanity can ever produce. It's a guy that is, if, if you read well, even the Lord says this to him, he's a teacher, uh, he's a Pharisee, of course. Uh, but you know, Pharisees got a very uh, bad rap, and, and rightly so, because most of them were pretty kind of, you know, hypocrites, and they wanted to... They were all the time fighting with the Lord Jesus. But here you have a Pharisee that is quite different from the majority of the Pharisees as we see them in the Gospels. Here you have a, a person who, first of all, he saw in Jesus the value, something really precious, something of God, as the whole conversation starts from there. He comes to the Lord and he, it, 
It's like he's, he's pouring a big compliment to the Lord. He said, Rabbi, which is master, you're a teacher coming from God. No one can do what you do if God is not with you. And he got that absolutely right. So Nicodemus stands as a representative of a great person, someone that probably knew an awful lot of the Bible, uh, someone that really was honest. When he's seeing Jesus, that's it. He's recognizing, you are really a master coming from God. When everybody else in his circle was pretty much criticizing Jesus, he stands up uh, as, a, as an exception here. And it's, it's something amazing to me, the kind of answer that Jesus gives to him. It comes, it comes across as almost a bucket of real cold water. Here's someone that is coming with to you with a compliment, and Jesus does not even say thank you or, you know, hey, you, you got that right or something. He go, goes right to the point. It sounds as almost Jesus is really giving a really harsh answer to this man, Nicodemus. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, if someone is not born again, in some translations, if someone is not born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And the first thing that comes to my mind is the question is, why is Jesus being so harsh with this, this man that is, you know, is here to, is seeing the value of Jesus, comes here and compliments the Lord, and, and the Lord would not take that. He would go directly and, 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 and give such a harsh answer. And well, I want to leave a thought with you. This, to me, just underlies the, underlines the kind of importance of the whole theme in John chapter 3. This matter of being born again, and behind this matter of being born again, which is the main thing, the main uh, thought throughout the chapter, behind this is the matter of walking in the Spirit. I want you to keep that in mind. This matter is so important. This matter is so urgent that the Lord will really go directly to the point. He will not even take a compliment. He will not get distracted by anything. This matter, there is an urgency, if I can use that word, behind this matter of Life, let me call it life in the Spirit, which includes walking in the Spirit. And I, I, I hope that we, from the very beginning, see the same urgency that Jesus saw when he was going to deal with this matter, with this man Nicodemus. So here comes Nicodemus, this great guy, and the Lord goes directly to the, the, the okay, here's, here's the problem, Nicodemus. It's, uh, it strikes me as a doctor, you know, a doctor that is really good. He will examine a patient, and he will know exactly what's wrong with that patient. He'll look at the symptoms and say, okay, here's the cause of this. And the Lord is doing that with Nicodemus. He's going right to the, here's your greatest need, Nicodemus. You have to be born again. And if you are not born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You see the urgency here? It's almost as the Lord is saying, Nicodemus, if, you're, if this doesn't happen to you, this thing that I'm talking to you, to be born again, if it doesn't happen to you, the things of God are going to be a closed, closed subject to you. You have absolutely no perception. You have no participation in the things of God. You will not be able to appreciate, to experience. You must be born again. And Nicodemus, we know the story, he, he comes with that question, right? Uh, but wait a second, how, how can a man, I, I'm old already, how can I be born again? And, and well, some people think that is a metaphorical question, and some people think that he was just thinking in physical terms, whatever it is. 
you see that he's not clear about what Jesus is saying. And Jesus goes ahead and clarifies. When he says, how can, I, can a man go back to the womb of his mother? Is that possible? You're talking about being born again. How, I, I don't quite get it. And Jesus clarifies. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, if someone is not born from water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And here Jesus starts to clarify what this matter is all about. And I want just to focus in one aspect of this. If someone is not born from the Spirit, this is what the Lord Jesus is talking about. He's talking about being born again. Why again? Well, because if you're here, you all were, congratulations, we were born one t- at least one time, right? If you're, if you're here on earth, of course, we were bro- born from our parents. And that's a natural birth. But Jesus is going to another kind of birth. If you're not born again, and that being born again has to do with being born of the Spirit. That is the nature of this whole thing that the Lord Jesus is talking here. All right. Uh, let me open a, a real quick parenthesis here, which I feel it's very is needed. And we'll, we'll try to do it really quick. Why being born again? Have you ever thought, where does this, thing, this, this expression, this phrase, to be born again, where can you trace that back to in the Old Testament? Hmm. Well, I'll, I'll suggest that there are several passages in the Old Testament that provide some sort of background to this. Maybe Ezekiel chapter 36, it's, uh, we're not going to go there. But I want to suggest something very, very basic very elementary here, which I truly believe that is the kind of, is the real source of the trouble. Why do we need to be born again? Mm, let's go back to the very beginning, Genesis. And we're not going to open Genesis today, but I just want to refresh our memories really quick. You remember the how God created man. And when God created man, there is something that is stamped all over Genesis 1, 2, and 3, especially chapter 2 and 3. Is the fact that when God created man, man was created in a, uh, well, the technical term, I don't know even how to say this in English, is three parasites or, or, well, whatever. Let's say that man was created with three major things that constitute man, right? Uh, what are those three major things that form the constitution of man? Well, we all have a body, something physical, material. And that allows us to interact with the world, the environment around us. We all have uh, something that is not material, which is uh, our personality. And that includes all the capacities related to intellect, emotions, to our will, our capacity to decide this or that. All that is comprised in something that we today may call personality. And the Bible calls by another name, by soul. So that's the second thing that God created in man. So keep it in mind. You have a body. You have a soul, which is, let's make it simple. It's your personality. And God created a third thing in man, which is actually the most noble part of man. It's something that the Bible calls the spirit. What is the spirit? To make it very simple, the spirit was, is the noblest part of man because by the spirit, the man, man and woman, and of course woman, had the capacity of having a relationship with God. It's very interesting. When you read the Bible, especially the original, 
you will see that sometimes the Bible refers to animals, like a dog or whatever, as souls. Right? I think even in Genesis chapter 1, you have that reference. So the Bible in its original uses the word soul for animal. But something that is unique in you, in human beings, that animals do not share, is indeed the spirit. In other words, among all the creation on earth, we're not talking about angels here, but let's, let's just talk about who was created on this earth. Among all the creation on earth, humankind has this absolutely unique capacity to have a personal relationship with God. And that is not because you have a body. Of course, animals also have a body. It's not because you have a soul. Because if you think well, animals, the, the Bible says that, refers to animals sometimes as souls. But uh, if you think well, if you define soul in terms of personality, in terms of you know, uh, intellectual capacity, of emotions, etc., uh, you probably agree with me that even animals, even pets, you look at them and say, you know, this like dogs. Have you ever interacted with a dog? Can you see that every dog has a little bit of a personality? Like some dogs are kind of shyer, some are very outgoing, and, and they, they have some level of intelligence. You know, they do their tricks, and you go to a circus and do the amazing stuff, not only dogs. So you can see that even in the lower creation, animals, etc., you see that this intelligence or emotions is, is not something unique to human, human beings. Even animals have that. But what is unique in man, in woman, as creation of God, is that they have, they were given a capacity for a personal relationship with God. And that's because Adam was created with the spirit inside of him. You remember the verse? Maybe we should, let me just uh, contradict myself and just read one. I said we were not going to read Genesis. But I think we should read at least one verse in Genesis today. Let's read chapter 2, verse 7. And it says, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground. See a material part here? Uh, so this, is, this was Adam's body, formed from something material, the dust of the ground. Here you have his body. And then breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So you have a second thing going on here. On that kind of, uh, here you have like a sculpture of, of dust, which was Adam in the beginning. And the Lord did something. He breathed mm, breath of life into Adam. What is that? Keep that in the back of your mind. We're going to get that later. And the last thing in the verse, and man became a living being, or in the original, a living soul. So clearly you have here three things going on with man in, in its constitution, in its creation. Something material from the dust, and God breathing something into man. What is that? Well, uh, here is the thing. In the Bible, in both, in he especially Hebrew, breath is always spirit. That's it. It's God is breathing a spirit into man. It's imparting, if you want that word, into man, a spirit. Something that would give man a capacity for relationship with him. And as, as the spirit came into man and touched his body, a third thing came into existence, which was a soul. See the, the, the three things going on here? Uh, 
Today we are not going to go into that. But through the whole passage, you will see that there is this huge emphasis on three things. Something related to your body, something related to your soul, and something related to your spirit. Okay. Uh, you remember what was the commandment of the Lord to Adam? How was that? He said, well, you can eat for whatever tree you want in the garden. Remember, the man was placed in the garden of Eden, and there was a test upon man. God never likes robots. Uh, that's, that's usually how, how I learned this. Uh, he wants someone, someone from his free or her free will to follow him. And then God has put man under some sort of probation. He says, well, you can eat from whatever tree in the garden, but from one tree you should not eat. And that was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Okay. And we all know the story. In chapter 3, what happened. So Satan, uh, in, 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 in the form of a serpent, or, or, or inside a serpent, is tempting Eve. And eventually Eve caves and, and she eats of it. But what God said to Adam is, the day you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. And we know the story. Eve ate, Adam ate. And that very same day that they ate, after eating, they, well, they spoke to God, and, and they lived many years after that. Uh, you know the story, maybe 900 years or so, and begat many children after that. But God said, the day you eat of that, the very day, you will surely die. How do we reconcile these things? And I, I'm sure you know this. We know that that day, man didn't die either physically or either in his soul. However, his spirit, that most noble part of man that would place him in relationship with God, died that very day as a result of sin. You see? Now let's go back to Nicodemus. You see why the Lord is being so urgent with Nicodemus and saying, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Oh, wait, wait a second. Probably Nicodemus, some, a, a bell rang in his mind or in, or in his conscience, actually. Like, mm, but yeah, that's right. My first forefather, Adam, he died. Something in him died. And that something in him put him out of touch with God. That's the greatest tragedy in humanity. Every other tragedy derives from that. And because of that, the Lord is being so urgent. The Lord Jesus is being so urgent with Nicodemus. Nicodemus, here is your greatest need. You must be born again. In other words, your spirit, which is born dead, needs to be regenerated. Needs to come alive again so you can enter into the sphere of divine things. Let me just mention one more thing. There is a very interesting expression in Genesis chapter 5. When Adam has, uh, it, in the genealogy of, of Adam, right? So, uh, uh, the, of course, you have Cain, you have Abel. But, you know, because of what happened between Cain and Abel, the first uh, descendant of Adam that counts in his genealogy is Seth. And the Bible uses an expression there. It says that man uh, beget, or uh, uh, I think, I guess that's a term, beget, beget a child to his own uh, image and likeness, not to God's image and likeness. Well, let me just make a little comment here. Some people believe that the image aspect, the main thing in that likeness between God and man, is the fact that man has something inside him that corresponds to God. In other words, that's the spirit. 
That's why man is referred to as being created in the image and likeness of God. Because there is something in man that corresponds to God, that is capable of a relationship. There was, let me put it in, a bad, in better English, there was something when man was created that corresponded to God. See? However, when after Adam sinned and he had his children, the Bible doesn't say that they were, cre- they were, uh, uh, they were created or they were, they were born according to the image of God. The Bible says that they were born in the image of Adam. How was Adam at that point when he had his children? Well, he had a body, of course. Otherwise, he wouldn't have children. He had a soul. He was able to talk, to think, to feel, etc. However, he had a dead spirit inside him. He had no relationship with God. Or the capability, there was something that could restore that relationship. We're not going to go there. However, that was his constitution. And when he had his children, the Bible says very specifically, they were born not in the image and likeness of God, but in the image and likeness of their parents. A body, a soul, and a dead spirit. That's the tragedy of humankind. We are born in this world in that condition. And that's the background, in my, in my estimation, of everything that we read in John chapter 3. That is why the Lord Jesus is telling Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus, you, ne- you need to have that relationship with God restored. That w- that was broken because of Adam has to be somehow restored. And if you are not born again, all the things of God are closing to you. You can hear about them. You can hear people preaching. You can read the Bible. But everything is going to be like a theory or like information. Like, ah, a nice story, you know. But nothing is going to be a reality. And that is, see, Nicodemus is a good Pharisee that he was. He certainly knew a lot of the Bible. And that was not enough. He had, he had very, he was a very decent man. Very high moral level. I sometimes wonder if any of us would have the moral standard of someone like a Nicodemus. So you're not talking about a bad guy. It's the very opposite. He's a terrific guy. Very, very good. And the Lord says to him, Nicodemus, that's not enough. That is not even the beginning. That doesn't even give you the beginning of the things of God. You need to be born again. And then you have this, I want you to keep that as the background. And here it close our little parenthesis about Nicodemus. Well, before closing that, there is something very important in chapter 3. In verse 9, if you pay close attention, there is the critical question of the whole chapter. When Nicodemus says, ask the Lord, how can these things be? In other words, Nicodemus, after he was wondering, wait, can I go back to the womb of my mother? He was obviously, obviously not confused about what the Lord was saying. And the Lord explained, no, no, I'm not talking about a physical prophet. I'm not talking about something that is natural. See, whatever is born of flesh is flesh. Whatever you get when you're born in this world, that's flesh. But what I'm talking about is being born of the Spirit. It's another realm. It's something different. And then Nicodemus finally started to realize, I I have no idea. I I don't know how, how I can even experience what Jesus is saying. And he asks this very important question in verse 9. He says, how can these things be? How can it happen? 
How can I be born again if this is something so important? Is this something, if this is the beginning of a relationship with God? And then the Lord Jesus has a lengthy answer to that question, but very, very important. And I just want to emphasize what is the substance, the kind of what goes to the very, very substance of, that, of the answer to the question, how can I be born again? Let's read again verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Please realize, these words are part of the answer of the Lord Jesus. He said something before. However, here he's coming to the very central point of answering the question, how can a man be born again? And the answer is very simple. You cannot. And nothing from this earth can cause you to be born again. That's what he's saying. No one has ascended to heaven. To be born again, remember, is in other translations, is being born from above. The first time you are born from your parents, you're definitely born pretty low on the earth, right? And the realm of our physical life or for, uh, and our soulish life is the realm of the earth. That's it. And Jesus is saying, but you know, you need to be born from another sphere, from another level, from above. And no one has ascended to heaven. In other words, there is no human being that is qualified to cause you to be born again. You yourself, if you're the most earnest person, you cannot produce a new birth. And Nicodemus definitely qualifies in that category of someone really of tremendous value, morally speaking, in terms of education, in terms of knowledge, in terms of religion. Tremendous value. And the Lord is saying, no one has ascended to heaven. All that stuff that you have, Nicodemus, that's what the Lord is saying in effect. Cannot take you to heaven, to the realm of heavenly things. Who is the one he's saying? No one has ascended to heaven, but or except he who descended from heaven. Oh, that's Jesus himself. Because he says, he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. In other words, there is one being that is his origin is from above. He's in the realm. He was, he is God. He's the one that is heaven. He's the one that came down to earth. For what? Because he is the one, Jesus. He can cause us to be born again. And how he does that? Verse 14 has the answer to that. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. You see what the Lord is saying? Uh, there is another set of imagery here. Maybe we shouldn't go there. But in, in one word, the Lord is making a, a reference to his cross. He's saying, one day, Nicodemus, I will be lifted up. I will be hanged on a cross. I will be nailed to a cross. And because of that, you can be born again. You see, this is the source of spiritual life. This is the source of walking in the Spirit. This is the cause of that effect that we want to consider this weekend, of walking in the Spirit. Even as we sang it this morning, I'm so grateful for the songs that we, we were singing this morning. So he poured his life down as rain, 
that we might be born again. You see that how, how true that is? Because he poured his life on the cross, because he was crucified on the cross, we can be born again. And that's the answer to, to the question of Nicodemus. How these things can be? How can I be born again? Well, that's the amazing love of the Lord. And you know, the, maybe let me just mention one thing about the imagery here of the serpent. He, the Lord is making that allusion to something that happened in the wilderness. When the, when the children of Israel were, for 40 years, they were walking around in the wilderness. You remember what happened one day? Serpents, very, very poisonous serpents, started to appear in the camp. And they were biting people, and people were dying. And it was actually kind of like a, 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 a judgment from the Lord because they were murmuring and they were, you know, they were doing all kind of wrong stuff. And well, and they, as usual, they turned to Moses and say, Moses, we are dying here. Do something. Pray for us, etc. And the Lord gave a provision. The Lord made a very specific provision to deal with that problem. People were being bitten by the serpents and dying because of the, of the venom. And the Lord said, okay, uh, Moses, you're going to make a serpent, like, exactly like the ones that are there in the camp, biting people. It's going to be a, a brazen serpent. And you're going to put that serpent uh, on like a pole in the middle of the, of the camp. And whoever is bitten, whenever that person is, about, is perished, is dying. The only thing that person needs to be to be healed is to look at that serpent, brazen serpent, in the middle of the camp, in the pole. And that's what happened. Moses made that serpent, put it in that, in that, lifted up the serpent, it was the imagery of the Lord, and when people were bitten by serpents, if anyone just looked at that serpent, at the brazen serpent, they were healed, they were restored. Well, what an image of the condition of humanity. You know that the serpent in the Bible stands for, for, for Satan. And for sin, it's through the serpent's temptation that sin came to the world. And what the Lord is saying here is amazing. Because He's saying, see, He's comparing Himself to that brazen serpent that, Moses, that God asked Moses to make in the wilderness. Isn't that something amazing? Who is the Lord Jesus? Is there any sin in Him? Is there anything that resembles a serpent when you look at the person of Jesus? Any wrong Anything morally questionable in his life is exactly the opposite. He's the Lamb of God, which is in, in the imagery, in the, in, if you just look at nature, is the exact opposite of a serpent. The serpent, if, when, when I look at a serpent, at least, it strikes me as, as this kind of deceiving creature, you know, uh, lowly and, and uh, you know, very, he's going to bite you and you're going to die. How about a lamb? It strikes you as someone that is something that is pure, something that is harmless, something that is almost there is some holiness that kind of transpires just to look at a, at a lamb. The Lord Jesus, indeed, is the Lamb of God. But isn't that amazing that to save you and me, that I could be born again, that you could be born again and have your relationship with God restored, Jesus Christ became a serpent, like a serpent. He was lifted up on a cross. And on that cross, He took upon His shoulders my sin, your sin. Why did He do that? Why did He have to go to that extent? Because that is the price, that is the cost for us to be born again. 
That is the cause for us to be born of the Spirit. That is in final analysis what causes us to walk in the Spirit. That He died on that cross that we might be born again. So my brothers and sisters, actually, this very important chapter is the source of our walk in the Spirit. This chapter is the cause behind the effect that the Bible calls walk in the Spirit. And I want you to keep that as in the back of your mind as we continue for another, some other moments here. Uh, well, let me ask a question here before we go on. All this wonderful story of the conversation of Jesus with Nicodemus is then the basis of spiritual life. What is the requirement then? After you consider that basis, what is the what is the basic requirement for someone to be able to walk? And before you go to spiritual walk, let's just is of course there is a there is a, a, a figure there, right? Spiritual walk, of course, there is a metaphor that resembles natural walk. The walk that we know in our, in our daily life. So what is the most basic requirement for a person to be able to walk? And I'm really going low here. It's really basic. Uh, you would say, well, the guy needs to be, you know, the guy or the gal needs to be energetic or have health. Uh, no, 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 forget all that. Listen, for someone to be able to walk, the most basic requirement, you need to have life. Yeah, it sounds almost ridiculous, I know. However, that's very important. And that's actually, uh, at the end of the day, that is when I read John chapter 3, that is what strikes me. If you try to ask a dead person to walk, well, don't do that, right? <laughs> He'll not do anything. But that's, you see that at the end of the day, what causes someone to be able to walk in the natural realm is the fact that someone is alive, and let me go a step further. You need to have a certain kind of life that is capable of walking. Uh, what do I mean? Well, think of there are many kinds of life, right? You have vegetable life. Uh, a tree is alive, right? But can a tree walk? No, it can't. Why not? Well, without going through the details, let's, let's make it very simple. The kind of life that is in a tree, that, and there is life there, but that kind of life cannot walk, is not capable. The nature of the life of the tree is such that that's it, it's planted on the ground, will not move. However, if you think in a human being or even in an animal, they have a certain kind of life that enables them to walk. See, the most basic requirement there for walking is that you need to have life and that life needs to be of a certain kind that is capable of walking. And what the Lord Jesus is telling Nicodemus is exactly this. Nicodemus, you need to get a life. <laughs> you need to be born again. It's not that in, in, this, in the sense that you, <laughs> that you guys are thinking. No. You need to receive a kind of life that will open the things of God to you. And in that kind of life, once you get that, that's what the Bible calls to be born again. You receive a new kind of life 
He's not like the first light we received from the Father. And that's the point in John 3, chapter, uh, in, in John, in the verse 6 of the, of the chapter that we read. The Lord says, whatever is born from flesh is flesh. But whatever is born from the Spirit is spirit. You see what the Lord is saying to Nicodemus? He's making a contrast here. He's saying, Nicodemus, when you were born, you received a certain kind of life from your parents. And that life the Bible calls flesh. Uh, and I know that uh, sometimes when we, the Bible has many, many uh, 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 ways of using the word flesh. Sometimes the word flesh is used in a very negative context. Like, for instance, the same chapter 5 of Galatians, you have the, fruits of the, sp- the fruit of the Spirit and the works of the flesh. And the works of the flesh is an awful list of things. You know, very, very low and awful. You know, all those horrible sins. And sometimes the Bible refers to flesh as a very negative thing, as, as something that is intrinsically bad. However, sometimes the Bible uses flesh in a more neutral way. Flesh sometimes refers to the life that we receive from our parents, which is not necessarily something uh, low. It's not necessarily something, you know, that is doing all those awful things that you see in Galatians chapter 5. However, that natural life, and that's what I want to leave with you this morning, that natural life is absolutely incapable to see the things of God, to experience the things of God. It can be noble sometimes. It can be very good. Like Nicodemus is the great example. He's a great guy. And however, that's it. It's closed. The things of God are, are an enigma to him. Even though he's very religious, which is a, it strikes us as a kind of a paradox here. But that's the truth of the matter. And that's what the Lord is telling Nicodemus. Well, so when you think in this matter of walking in the Spirit, this is the essential requirement. You need to receive a kind of life that is capable of walking in the Spirit. And the life that we receive from our parents is not capable of that. That's the point. Even if you try hard, even if you say, you know what? Let's say that you're like a Nicodemus, a very decent person, uh, a a very uh, moral, religious, or whatever it is. If you try hard for a hundred years, if you can live that long, I'm going to walk in the Spirit, you know, that's destined to failure. It's never going to happen. Because that kind of life, the life of the flesh, and not in the bad sense here, the, li- the natural life that we receive from our parents is incapable of walking in the Spirit. And that's then the basic requirement that I want to kind of impress upon you and me here this morning. For us to walk in the Spirit, we need to receive a life from above. All right. Uh, how does this life in the Spirit look like? This, I, I think I need to open another parenthesis here before we go to a, a question of, okay, how does, how does the, the, the walk in the Spirit work? Let me ask another question, more basic. What on earth am I talking about? When, or, or what is, is Paul saying when he says, well, if we live by the Spirit, let's walk also by the Spirit. What does this walk in the Spirit looks like? Uh, it can be sometimes something very kind of... Uh, very enigmatic to us, you know, oh, walk in the Spirit, and, and you're floating around, and you know, and always meditating, and you're, you barely touch the ground, and you work just, you know, barely, the minimum required, because you don't want to be in contact with the earth, so that must be a walk in the Spirit. 
But is that what the Bible is talking about, walking in the Spirit? Is that mystic kind of experience that, you know, a very few select people <coughs> are capable of doing that, and the vast majority of Christians are, you know, doomed to just this regular walk in the flesh. You're saved, thank the Lord. But, you know, walking in the Spirit is a totally different level of experience. Is that what the Bible is saying? Uh, so I want to try in the hope that we can clarify this matter. And even dissipate this kind of wrong idea that I feel that often we, we kind of have in our minds about what is walking in the Spirit. I just want to suggest, what does walking in the Spirit, in the spirit looks like? What is, can, can we find some example in the Bible, something that we can look as a referential? And I feel we have plenty of those examples and referentials in the Bible about what is walking in the Spirit. Well, one of them, I think the Gospel of John is a Gospel that is filled with those, is essentially a Gospel, that the aim of this Gospel is to show, is that you may receive life. Remember the end of the Gospel of John? And this life is life in the, in the Spirit. But does the Gospel of John present with a picture, with something more concrete that we can look at and say, oh, now I know what the walk in the Spirit looks like. Now I know what I'm supposed to live because I, if we believe in the Lord, we have this life that is capable of walking. So what does that look like? What does this walk in the Spirit, this life in the Spirit look like? And I want you to turn to John chapter 2. Just go a, a little you know, page behind the chapter we are considering. And you have this sign. Maybe we don't need to read it. I just want to mention it to you. This is the first sign that Jesus performed. And it's very telling. The fact that this is the first sign. Because as someone said, it's like this sign is like a, 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 has all the elements that represents all the other signs that he ever performed. And what is the sign? Well, he transformed water into wine. Remember that? He was in this wedding feast. And in the middle of the wedding, they run out of wine. In those days, that was a tragedy. You know, your, your feast would be ruined. That's it. What? No wine here? It's, it's, it's really in, those, in the Eastern culture. That would be a really terrible thing to happen. And well, Jesus is there in that wedding, and they run out of wine. And you remember the story. Uh, to make the long story short, he asks for six big jars, containers, uh, 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 that usually were used to, be, to contain water. He asks that to be filled with water. And after that is done, he says, oh, now you can, come, you can uh, uh, call the, the, the MC, right, the Master of Ceremonies and asked him to taste of the water. And the water was transformed into wine. Well, this is a sign that sometimes we look at it as, well, this, what is this all about? And I want to leave this with you. It seems to me that here you have a picture of what life in the Spirit is. See, you have two kind of things in that container. You have something before Jesus did something, and that was water. And after he did something, you have wine. And not just wine. Wine of the best quality. The MC went, he didn't know wh where the wine came from. And he asked the groom, you remember? He said, how come you left this excellent wine, the best wine? You left it to the, to the end of the, the, you know, of the whole feast. You should serve this first. He was kind of amazed with the quality of that. And here is the picture. Before Jesus comes into, into action, before Jesus does something, you have water. And water, you know, mm, well, it's a great thing. You know, I'm, I'm grateful I have my bottle here. 
However, in the, in the context of a feast, mm, it's not quite satisfying. You know, you rather have your coke or your, you know, or your wine or whatever it is. And that's exactly the, the picture here. Jesus is turning something that has no taste, something that is very common, that, you know, has no satisfaction. And that's the imagery in the Bible. He's turning that into something of the best quality, something full of satisfaction. If you read in the Old Testament, that's the idea behind wine. It's something that brings joy to men. That's, again, that's something in the typology of the Bible. But you see what is the point? That is a picture of life in the Spirit. That is the picture of what is the life that the Lord Jesus came to give us. When He, when he died on the cross, when He causes us to be born again, the life that He offers is this life full of satisfaction. Very abundant. If you make a little calculation of the amount of wine that was produced there, it's like, wow, each one of those, there, there were six big jars. Each one of those jars, they could, uh, if I remember correctly, it's, I think it's something around 100 liters or, or something, like each jar. And in gallons, that would be what? Divided by four, obviously. 25 to 30 gallons per jar. And the Lord turned six jars full of water into wine. Can you imagine the amount of excellent wine that was produced by the Lord? And that's a picture. What kind of life is that that Jesus gives you and me? It's a life of the best quality, full of satisfaction in that life, abundant. It never runs out. See, the life that we have in Adam, that, that life runs out really quick, doesn't it? Have you ever pursued something in the world? And I'm talking about good things here, right? Sometimes you're pursuing your career, you're pursuing your, your school accomplishments, and sooner or later you realize, you know what? Uh, yeah, I'm doing well in my career, but I'm still empty. Uh, there's still something missing. I'm doing well at school, and you know, I have this, I have that, but there is always that sense, uh, where is the satisfaction? If you taste that life that the Lord Jesus has, oh, that life is full of satisfaction. See, this is a picture of life in the Spirit. When I say life in the Spirit, I'm using this, probably you know this, but let me say it. I'm using this as an equivalent of the life that we receive when we are born again. Because the life that the Lord Jesus is talking to Nicodemus is that life that is born from water and the Spirit. And that is the life that is capable of walking in the Spirit. All right. So, uh, there are many other ways. The Gospel of John will present us very a, a, a number of pictures of this matter of life in the Spirit. Uh, just to, to be a little more complete, when the Lord spoke to that woman by the well, you remember? The Lord refers also to life with her. And I, I would like to read this with you. John chapter 4. Starting from 13, Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water, and this is, he's referring to a water that was in a well, physical water. Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him 
shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will, be, will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. You see, that's a picture of life in the Spirit. It's a life that will never make you thirst again. Will quench your thirst forever. You'll never be saying, well, you know, I have this life in me, but now I need something else. If we truly are living in the good of that life, that life will really satisfy us. That is life in the Spirit. And in the Gospel of John, the list goes on and on about the passage. And the Lord says, whoever believes in me from his inner being, there will be like rivers of living water are going to flow. And he referred to the Spirit that the ones that were going to believe in him were going to receive. Right? Life in the Spirit again. I came that they may have life and life abundant. See a picture of life in the Spirit? It's abundant. It's full. Even as the, uh, as, as the first sign on, on, the came, on Cana's wedding reveals. Well, let's go to the last question in the morning. How can we walk in the Spirit? We saw the source of the, this walk in the Spirit, which is the life in the Spirit. We saw uh, how does this life in the Spirit look like? Yeah, it's a life full of satisfaction, full of joy. It's really fulfilling. But how can we enter into that experience of walking in the, in the Spirit? Well, I want to make this very simple again. Uh, and as I already said, to walk, you need to get a certain kind of life. And I want to suggest this. Every Christian, and I'm, I'm not referring here to what the world calls Christian. I'm sure that you know this. But let me say, let me be very clear about this. Every Christian, according to the biblical definition, and what is the biblical definition of a Christian? It's someone that was born again. It's someone that experienced what the Lord describes to Nicodemus. Every Christian is capable of walking in the Spirit. Every Christian has received a life inside of him that can cause him to walk in the Spirit. And that's the key. You want to walk in the Spirit, all you need is a kind of life that you received already when you believed in the Lord Jesus. So the second question is, how come, when you look at the church in general, when you look at the condition among Christians, how come it seems that to walk in the Spirit seems to be the exception rather than the rule? Isn't that a kind of a, a paradox? Isn't that something that something abnormal here? If we had that life, then A, we should be walking according to that life. But what's the problem then? Why this process of walking in the Spirit is not working as simple as we're supposed to walk, to, 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 to happen, right? You have the life, you should walk. Well, a couple of things that, and I want to suggest two things from the text that we are reading here in John chapter 3. The first thing is that we need to recognize the nature of this life. And I want to go again. Let's read it again. Verse 6 of chapter 3. Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. That which is born of the Spirit. Sorry. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. See... What the Lord is saying to Nicodemus is something like in this, the, the implications are like this. Nicodemus, this new life that you need to receive 
has nothing to do with the old life that you have. The problem with many of us, with many, many Christians is this. They have the new life. If you're a Christian according to the Bible, you do have this life. There is no question. That's, that's what the Bible calls a Christian in the first place. It's not what the world says is a Christian. You know, in the world, to be a Christian is just if you join a Christian community, or if you are born in a family of a Christian tradition, that's it. The world will say you are a Christian. The Bible never refers to a Christian as that. Christian in the, is the Bible. It's someone that received this new life. But the problem with us is that even though we are Christians, thank the Lord for that, we were born again by His grace, we believed in Him. However, we somehow insist in still living by the old life. And that's the tragedy. You see? And what the Lord is telling Nicodemus here is very, very important. He's saying, Nicodemus, there is no overlap between the new life that I'm, that I'm here to give you and the old life that you have from your, from your birth. What a tragedy. You receive a new life, but somehow we are still kind of caught up in trying to live by the old life. Again, what is this old life all about? Remember what, what happened to Adam? He died, right? His spirit died. And his life was reduced to body and soul. And that's not necessarily bad. Your soul has capability of thinking, of feeling, etc. However, when it comes to the things of the Lord, all these things will not get you anywhere. That's a big problem in this matter of walking in the Spirit. Not that you don't have the life. Thank the Lord. You may have it if you were born again. But are we living by that life? There is a very important distinction. It's not something that happens automatically. See? You receive a new life when you believe in the Lord. But after that happens, we still have a daily transaction to make with the Lord. We need to say to the Lord, I want to live by the new life that you gave me. I don't want to live by the old life that I have. A tremendous problem in Christianity is people that have a new life still living by the old life. And that is that will prevent you from walking in the Spirit. Of course. It's like you, you receive the life that is capable of walking, but you're living by the life of a tree. See? Of course. Guess what is going to happen? It's, it's not going to happen. The walk is never going to be there. The wonderful news is that there is no reason whatsoever for us not to live in the new life that the Lord has given. It's quite the opposite. It's what is expected of all of us. It's what is possible to every one of us. But then comes a second problem. And I want to conclude with this one. The second problem uh, is at the same time is a sort of a picture of walk in the Spirit, which is contained also in our text. It's in verse 8. Let's read verse 8. It, it reveals a problem and at the same time gives us another picture of what is a walk in the Spirit. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Uh, you remember when we already spoke about this. You remember when the Lord created man? He made something of dust, and then the Lord breathed into man. What was that he breathed? Wasn't the spirit? You know, in Greek, the word wind is the same word for spirit. And that's what the Lord is saying. The wind blows whatever it wants, and so is everyone that is born of the spirit. What is the point that the Lord is trying to impress to Nicodemus? 
is a picture about what is life in the Spirit. And life in the Spirit means that the Holy Spirit, when we have life in the Spirit, and when we are living in that good of that life, the Holy Spirit is sovereign upon that life. That is the hallmark of life in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is sovereign. That is what proves life in the Spirit. And that is what causes you to walk in the Spirit. Whenever the Holy Spirit has the final word in your life and in my life, there you go, life in the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. You see the, the picture here? Uh, I think the Lord is being very basic with Nicodemus. The example is very clear. The wind blows whatever it wants. Have you ever tried to control the direction of the wind? Did you ever try to reason with the wind? No, 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 don't blow this way, you know, because it's messing up my hair. You know, blow the other way around. It's, it's, it will not work. The wind is sovereign in the natural realm, but so is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, and that is spiritual life, is absolutely sovereign. And here's the problem with, mo- with many of us. We very, very often, we do not submit to the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit. The life is in you. You have received that life. But somehow that life gets confined to a corner in your life. And then you're living by your old life. Guess what happens? No walk in the Spirit. See? So this at the same time, this verse presents us with a wonderful picture. What is life in the Spirit? And at the same time, it's a tremendous warning. It shows us our problem. We very often do not submit to His sovereignty. Uh, I am reminded of this verse in John, in 1 John chapter 2. Probably should read that. If you go to, not the gospel, but the first epistle of John, the very end of the Bible. First John chapter 2. Let's read verse 27. As for you, the anointing which you have received from him abideth in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing, te- as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it hath taught you, abide in him. You see, anointing here is being used to refer to the person of the Holy Spirit. When you are born again, thank the Lord, See, it's, it's beyond what I can comprehend and even communicate, the privilege of this life that we receive. When we are born again, the person of the Holy Spirit, the divine person, comes to dwell in you. And this is what John is telling us, his, his readers here. The anointing dwells in you, is there inside you. But now you have one responsibility. See, you have to listen to the teaching. Of the, of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a very gentle person. Very, very humble. He's God. Don't make any mistake about that. It's not that there is any lack of power or any lack of... No, no, no. He's gentle because that is His nature. However, He's God Almighty. And He decided, He condescended to dwell in us and to teach us and we have That's what I really can... I do not understand. How much grace is that? 
I have the option of listening to his teaching or not. You see? But if we are going to ever walk in the Spirit, here is the thing that we need to learn by the grace of the Lord. We need to learn to listen to the teaching of the Holy Spirit that dwells in us and to submit to such teaching. We need to learn the principle that the wind blows wherever he wants. That's the Holy Spirit. He must have total liberty in my life. He, ha- he needs to have the final word to take me wherever he wants. And when this happens, there you go. You're walking in the Spirit. It's not just life in the Spirit, see? But that life now is in action. That life is doing what it's supposed to do, which is to walk. You know, walk in the Bible often is, is, this, is a figure of something of progress. Of, uh, there is your advancing. You're going to a direction. Uh, you're doing what you're supposed to do rather than sitting still and doing nothing. You know? And that's very often what the Bible presents under that picture of walking. And this is to walk in the Spirit. It's what you're supposed to do. I feel that uh, something that strikes me, and let's conclude with this, is that this wonderful passage in John chapter 3, it ends with, the, the passage that we read, ends with this very famous verse, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And as I was meditating, it struck me in this direction this time. Behind this whole matter of life in the Spirit, behind this whole matter of even walking in the Spirit, is the eternal love of God. God loves you and me so much that He would not let us go. When we were separated from Him because of sin, because of our sins, He would go after us. His Son would die on the cross that we might be born again. But that's not the end of the story. That's just the beginning. When you're born again, you're supposed to walk in the Spirit. You see that behind this whole matter, you have the eternal love of God for you and me. That is His will for you, not just to be born again, but that you can live according to the life that He has given you. So may the Lord be merciful to us. May we meditate on this verse. Let's conclude with a word of prayer. Lord, indeed, as we sang at the beginning of this meeting, we marvel with the fact, Lord, that You have You poured your life as rain that we might be born again. What a grace, what a love that the eternal Son of God would die on the cross that we would have a new life. We that are separated by nature from you, we can be quickened and regenerated, Lord. Lord, our prayer is that you would open our eyes that we may see what a privilege, what a grace, what a love was given to us when we believed in you. And Lord, as we see that, that we may respond even in walking according to the life that was given to us. That we may be those that are not, not only live by the Spirit, but they walk by the Spirit. So we thank you and commit this, these words into your hands. We pray that by your grace you would clarify and, and somehow lead us into the experience of your word. In Jesus' precious name.